You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Later part of the decade, it just supply drops off a cliff relative to demand. So who knows how high it could go. But I do think this is going to be a pretty long bull market. I don't think it's going to be a parabolic spike and then fall. Um, it could happen depending on what plays out. But I would like to see a longer term and healthier bull market that, that rises precipitously for, let's say, five plus years. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. Thank you for tuning in. Well, the focus of today's show will be again on uranium. Uh, For some time, we hadn't done too many interviews as it relates to investing in the uranium sector, but we had Daniel Major of Goviex Uranium on recently. And today you're going to be hearing from a uranium newsletter writer. I'm speaking today with Justin Hune. His website can be found at uraniuminsider.com. Com, uraniuminsider.com and Justin is also at the center of a very vibrant and engaging uh, online investing community found on Twitter so you can find Justin at uh, Uranium Insider on Twitter as well with that being said uh, Justin welcome to Mining Stock Education it's your first time and just a few days ago we had the US Department of Energy release their long delayed nuclear fuel working group report as you perused over this report what were some of your key takeaways and what's the significance for uranium investors? Uh, thanks, Bill. Yeah, I, my pleasure uh, to be here with you today. I've, I've been a longtime fan of your channel, so it's kind of an honor. Thank you. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the nuclear fuel working group, um, finally, this is two years, uh, more than two years coming since the initial Section 232 petition was filed by uh, Energy Fuels and UR Energy. Um, essentially stating uh, that the, the, it was a national security issue that uh, the United States was dependent on uh, majority uh, foreign supplied uranium. And uh, that was pushed off last year in July. Uh, uh, the uh, petition was essentially um, uh, shut down in a way from President Trump. He denied the, the recommendations from that petition and implemented this nuclear fuel working group that has been ongoing with expected <laughs> resolution. Um, every few months, uh, the community generally thinks that we're going to hear about it, and we had essentially given up, and then out of nowhere, um, it comes out. And so um, it looks resoundingly positive, in my opinion. Um, it's really uh, pretty profound to see that this type of language and um, commitments is being used by the U.S. federal government in support of nuclear energy. It's not something that any of us following this sector for a number of years would have dreamed of even three years ago. So it's really incredible. Um, the details of it, as far as numbers, dollars, uh, pounds, and all of that, have yet to really be committed upon. But they have said that they um, are uh, proposing a 17 to 19 million pound purchase program by the government that would happen over a number of years, starting potentially this year. It would be uh, domestically mined uranium being purchased for a strategic stockpile. And there's a number of companies that could benefit from that, primarily the two petitioning companies. Um, but there's also a lot of language in the report that suggests support for nuclear utilities in the United States, support for the deregulated utilities that have to compete with natural gas power, um, potentially life extensions for existing reactors, and then support for the whole fuel cycle, including conversion and enrichment. Um, there's a number of other things, a proposal that would limit Chinese and Russian imported fabricated fuel, which would support uh, uh, Westinghouse and Framatomps. So. It's, it's a very overarching um, 
uh, report that looks resoundingly positive from what I can tell. Uh, I'm very pleased with what I was reading. And so for the long-term implications and um, implementation of what's spoken about in this report, it would need, I understand, congressional approval and Trump's re-election. Is that right? It would at least need congressional approval. Um, it's And although it's the Trump administration that has been in support of, of this whole thing, it's uh, I don't necessarily know that lacking his re-election, this uh, support would disappear. That's kind of uh, up in the air at this point. But yes, I believe uh, the majority, if not the entire um list of, of recommendations still needs congressional support. It's assumed that most of it will have congressional support. I'm sure there will be some infighting on the details and the numbers, but um, overall it looks very, very positive from what I can tell. Do you think the conclusions of this report was kind of baked into the cake, uh, so to speak, that this was the expectation from those that invest in the uranium sector? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think so. The you know It was leaked, it was I believe in January, um, that there was this $150 million a year program to buy domestic uranium. Um, so that was sort of known by the market that that was something that was in the federal budget for 2021. And, um, so that was, you know, essentially occluded in the report, but we've also understood a number of other intentions by the working group, um, from as early as last fall that were made known from a couple of leaks. So I think it was pretty baked in. Um, I don't know that the market necessarily understands the gravity of, um, you know, the number one nuclear, uh, energy supplier um, and user of nuclear energy in the world that's essentially been uh, let their let their uranium industry almost die over the past decade, showing this sort of support is pretty profound. Because of this uh, COVID-19 crisis, we've seen a number of mine shutdowns, uh, Kazataprom, Cameco, uh, Namibia, I understand also um, the mines there. Um, the government asked for them to be shut down. But with all of those uh, supply cuts, I mean, does that kind of overshadows this, though, doesn't it? I mean, is there is this as significant as what was announced in the previous weeks in terms of supply cuts? The working group? Correct. This report. Is that what you mean? Yes. It, it's yes, but in an entirely different way. It's significant in that, you know, there's been an overhang for the industry for over two years now since this petition, petition that's at least had some effect on the normal functioning of the market as far as utilities, you know, entering long-term contracts, not knowing the outcome of this petition. So the, 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 the fact that this is now essentially over with, or a lot of the questions about what would be recommended and the potential for those to be implemented is now off the table. I think that's going to add a lot of clarity to a number of utilities. Um, so it's significant in that way. And it's significant in that uh, I think that the U.S. equities have a tailwind. Um, it's not a shot in the arm uh, for, by any means, but just the fact that we're seeing um, government support for this is definitely significant. Um, the mine closures are more of an acute uh, situation that kind of came out of nowhere. And basically, it, in my, my opinion is it's sort of like a match to a powder keg. We've, we've had a very tight um, supply-demand situation in a very tight spot market for a, for a while now. And it's just kind of taken this catalyst to really set it off. So that's what we've seen over the past four weeks or so. Um, I think it's almost actually pushing five weeks since the Cigar Lake uh, closure announcement. Um, like you mentioned, Kazataprom being um, ramping down their production, um, essentially closing off their production. They're still running fluid through their ISR mines, so it's not like they're actually completely closing up shop, but they're expecting a two-thirds production decline over the course of three months. Um, so overall, we're looking at probably at least a 20 million pound supply shock, uh, if not significantly more, if we include um, 
the Namibian mines and we're seeing demand, uh, I'm sorry, we're seeing supply interruption in some other mines as well. So it's, it's quite significant. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. Justin, as I'm sure you're aware, oil went negative $40 a barrel earlier, uh, about a week ago. And, uh, you know, I'm curious. I have no idea what you might say here, but what's the connection between oil and uranium? I mean, did that have any impact on the uranium sector at all? Um, I think that it has, but sort of, um, sort of in a in kind of a ninety degree way. Uh, so the historically there has been some correlation to the price of oil and the price of uranium, but they're not directly connected. Um, the main way that I think this is going to play out in the way that it affects uranium uh, and nuclear energy in general, especially in the U.S., is that the the low oil price is certainly going to impact natural gas production from associated gas. Um, we're seeing wells being shut in. So there's going to be a big shock to the natural gas supply, and natural gas power is kind of the biggest uh, competitor for nuclear energy in the states. So if we see an, a rising natural gas price, that definitely makes nuclear energy more competitive um, in the deregulated markets. So that's I think that it's it's not directly correlated, but there are some uh, there are some effects that are going to come from it. I believe the spot price powered through thirty dollars, which seemed to be kind of a barrier for quite some time. Uh, as we chat here, my finance app tells me it's at thirty two dollars a pound. Uh, any expectations for the remainder of this year in terms of the spot price that you could share with us? Sure. Yeah, I think um, I don't think it's going to go up in a straight line, but I expect it to be generally um, trending upwards for the remainder of the year. Even when the mines that are uh, in care and maintenance or temporary shutdown come back online, um, and I believe right now, I think I saw today the ask was thirty three fifty. We have a very thin market. Uh, we know that Cameco has done some buying. They probably have a bit more to do. Orono has been buying. We've got, I believe, utilities finally starting to kind of take notice and and pick up some pounds in the spot market. And we've had traders covering. And so I think that we'll probably see some resistance in the high 30s, possibly low 40s. You know, as the price rises, we will see some supply come into the market, not necessarily to manipulate it back down, but just to take advantage of natural market forces. You know, anytime a commodity rises, you'll see sellers that weren't there before appear. But we don't believe that there's a huge amount of supply that's going to come into the spot market, particularly um, at a certain price. But I think that we'll see, my general prediction is we should see high 30s, low 40s, um, kind of at a minimum by the end of the year. And I also think that there's going to be some significant seasonality this year. We haven't had it the past two years, and it's pretty reliable. So we have uh, the utilities fiscal year beginning in October. And, um, and I believe that we'll see that Q4, Q1 seasonality that should be strong. 
So I, I generally kind of see any dips and weakness in the next uh, six months or so through Q3 as, as really good buying opportunities. Brandon Monroe, I've spoken to about a little over a year ago, and he said there was a $30 psychological barrier that once that's broken through, we'll see a lot more money come into the sector. Uh, do you see that or do you ha- have any other metric that you're looking for or barrier to break through to where you think a lot of the money that's on the sidelines will start to pay more attention to this sector? I think, um, I, you know, I sort of thought the same thing with the $30. Uh, it definitely was a psychological barrier, um, primarily because the, the, the rally last year, um, or excuse me, the year before that took it up to around that point, just under $30 and it, and it fell back down. So there's been a, a number of head fakes and I think that it's going to take um, some sustaining through that price uh, to really get things moving. And, you know, I, I also think that there's some broad market effects right now, just in the finance market and, um, in, in just the investing market in general that could be keeping some uh, some larger investments from coming into the space. But we are seeing the bellwether you know, Cameco and some of the other larger caps like uh, NextGen and some of the funds, Yellowcake, Uranium Participation, ETFs, getting some decent volume. Cameco has been very strong, strong with volume, strong with an uptrend. That's a really good sign. Um, so I, it's hard to really say exactly at what price we'll see a flood of institutional money come in. But I think just further positive news as it trickles in, um, perhaps the nuclear fuel working group might trigger some of that. And if we continue up through the $35 range, uh, I don't think necessarily it's going to be a flood all at once without another uh, catalyst that's very public and, and, and really gets out there. I don't know what that could be. But I do think it's going to be more of a trickle in. I don't think that this is necessarily going to be a parabolic market like the last time. It has that potential depending on how the U.S. Utilities Act in the next six to eight months, let's say. If they come to the table to contract, then we could see more of a of a healthy market. If they put it off till next year, I think we'll have more of a price spike. About a month ago in mid-March, we saw the bloodbath in the general equities that spiked low. With that, the resource sector sold off. Uh, gold in particular spiked down then spiked back up. Uranium equities, I was uh, even when I saw for the first time before everything spiked low in mid-March, uh, when energy fuels broke a dollar, I was like, wow. And then it went mm. even farther on the spike down. But then the uranium equities came roaring back, especially with the supply cuts that were announced. My expectation is that we will see another sell-off in the general equities and that the general equities will go lower, at least for a particular period of time. I ask myself, so are people going to go to gold for as a safe haven and therefore the gold stocks will not sell off? That's I'm, The jury's still out for me on that yeah. one. But as it relates to the uranium sector, where people don't traditionally look at it like a safe haven buy the way you would gold, do you think the uranium equities could sell off again? It's certainly possible. Um, I think that the early March sell-off, really, it just happened so fast that it was a liquidity crisis that just took everything out. Like there was mm-hmm. no safe haven besides being short. And uh, I, I don't, I don't think that we're going to see another liquidity crisis like that, even with another broad market pullback. I see there's a lot of expectation that we're going to see another leg down to retest those lows, perhaps lower. I don't know. I don't really do very well with predicting broad market movements. But in general, I think that uranium has shown uh, a pretty good strength um, relative to the S&P since the crash, um, as well as gold. And I think that it depends on, for uranium in particular, and perhaps for gold, it depends on the price movement of the underlying commodity. So if we see the S&P and the Dow down um, 
and the uranium spot price continues to climb, it could be somewhat of a safe haven unless we see another just really hard crash. You know, if the down, Dow is down 10% in a day again, like it did a few days in March, um, you know, we could see some liquidity uh, uh, coming out of that market as well, just for a safe haven for, for, for cash. So it's, it's hard to say, but in general, the spot market looks like the trend, I think, is going to stick at least for the next month or two before some of these mines potentially come back online. We see um, maybe a little bit of consolidation, but the potential is there for safe haven. When you look forward to the uranium uh, bull move that we're expecting here, and I believe we're in the midst of at least the early stages, what is your expectation in terms of spot price and years of upcycle? I generally uh, believe that we're going to see the spot price rise and at least hold in the 40s and the term price in the 50s. And the reason that that is, is I believe that that's a price that the big players, so that'd be Cameco, Kazatoprom, Orno, Uranium One, um, all of these big players can uh, make a, a decent profit. They can run profitably at that price and still maintain their market share uh, at a price that does not yet incentivize further new greenfield projects to come online or projects that are suspended like Langer Heinrich uh, from Paladin, um, the, some of the Uranium uh, U.S. plays. Um, you know, these, these projects and the greenfield projects for the most part need much higher prices than, let's say, the $50, $55 range for term contracts. So I'm kind of seeing two scenarios. Uh, I believe that, like I mentioned before, if the U.S. utilities come in sooner rather than later, then we could see that sort of healthy rise into the $40, $50 range where it could consolidate for a while. And that could be six months to a year, maybe a bit longer of kind of some sideways action in that price range. And we have a, a chunk of uranium that's available for term contracting from those players I just mentioned, the big players, um, that will consume a good chunk of the contracting cycle for a period of time, but it will not provide all of the uranium for this next contracting cycle. So the next leg up, I believe, um, if we move up in a slower, more healthy way over the next year, the next leg up will take us into that next price range. And I believe that will be in the $70 plus. It's hard to say how high it goes, um, but I believe we're going to need the, the $60 to $75 range. Um, the market will need that, let's say, out past 2023, 2024, and beyond. Um, and the later part of the decade, it just supply drops off a cliff relative to demand. So who knows how high it could go. But I do think this is going to be a pretty long bull market. I don't think it's going to be a parabolic spike and then fall. Um, it could happen depending on what plays out. But uh, I would like to see a longer term and healthier bull market that, that rises precipitously for let's say five plus years mm -hmm. and is part of that assumption what went into you being so focused on a small aspect of the resource sector yeah i think so um it's it really just kind of uh slapped me in the face a few years ago the the potential for this as an investment and how bludgeoned the market was just it was really attractive for a contrarian bet and it just kind of stuck yeah i think you know, I think that we're entering a, a general commodities bull market that's probably going to last a good part of the decade for a lot of different metals and commodities. Um, but I think that uranium holds holds the biggest potential, if you know, at least one of the biggest potential for out of all those plays. Just it's such a small market, and investors remember the last market too. So I think once we have a pretty significant confirmation of that price uptrend, we'll see that money come into this very small market and 
usually the equities move in big ways when that happens. A newcomer to the uranium space is uh, royalty companies, which have been in the gold and precious metal space. What is your thoughts here? Uh, you don't have to talk spe about a specific company, but in general, do you like the idea of royalty companies in the uranium space? Um, personally, I'm not not really that attracted uh, to the uh, royalty company that I'm uh, more aware of. Um, it's mainly because of, of the management that's running it and and I'm familiar with the assets that they hold. Uh, a number of them are not going to come online for many, many years, if ever. And I think that really their most valuable asset is shares in Yellowcake, which is uh, just a fund that holds physical uranium. Um, mm -hmm. And the insiders on that one already made their 10x on the IPO. So I think I think that was mainly an inside job. Um, and I just think that there's much better options for an investor out there to invest even in the physical uranium is, is probably safer um, um, from an investment standpoint. And... And the miners are still, still even after a four or five week rally, are so incredibly undervalued. There's some really good companies in this space that hold huge potential. So I'm not that interested personally, but I wouldn't blame anybody for going for it. Could you just tell us percentage-wise in your own portfolio uh, how you divvy that up amongst development companies, explorers, and producers? Sure. Um, my own portfolio is probably uh, what would be considered irresponsibly weighted in uranium. Um, but that's mainly because... It's something that I feel I understand very thoroughly, so I'm comfortable with that. And amongst uranium, um, I focus mainly on the developers. Um, I have uh, smaller holdings that are sort of core holdings in the physical funds um, and a couple of the larger players just kind of as a, as a foundation mm -hmm. for the portfolio. Um, I'm not as attracted to explorers that have yet to make a discovery. Uh, traditionally, when if and when some of those hit some big deposits during a bull market, they can really explode, but it's more of a gamble. I like, there's a couple of explorers that have already hit um, some really killer intersections, um, drill intersections and proving out deposits as we speak that are very undervalued. I like those plays. And then I really like the developers that have a, a very strong chance um, uh, at coming into production during the bull market. So they've already got their assets. They've already done some exploration. They've got historical or potentially even 4301, 101 uh, resource estimates on these assets. Some of them are even at PEA stage and looking at production within a few years. I really like those companies, especially at low valuations. Being heavily invested in the developers, do you expect them to outperform their peers? Definitely, yeah. There's some really small market cap developers that I'm strongly invested in that, that should come into production quickly when the price confirms. Um, and I think that there'll be a really, really substantial re-rating of the valuations of these. You have a background in, um, your bio says, technical analysis and momentum trading. So what can you share with us about the ebbs and flows of the uranium sector? For somebody listening to us now, they haven't followed the uranium equities for years like you have. What can you tell us about the seasonality within the uranium sector? Um, the seasonality is is pretty reliable. Like I mentioned, it hasn't really happened the past couple of years, but generally speaking, we usually see uh, a rising tide in Q4, Q1, and kind of a retraction in, in Q2, Q3, year over year. Um, uranium equities are very, very volatile. Um, unless you're really good at swing trading, uh, even day trading, I, I wouldn't recommend trading in and out of these stocks unless you really know what you're doing because they, well, some of the small caps are very illiquid, so they're difficult to trade in and out of, at least right now. Um, so for me, my strategy, uh, even having a more of a technical analysis background is for uranium is just, I, I buy the companies when they're down, um, that I like. So I just have my watch list. I have my positions. I add when I can. Uh, on weakness. 
and that's worked out really well for me over the past couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think I think the technical analysis will really come into play. It helps with entries, but entries are difficult to time. Um, I think it'll come into play when we're farther into this cycle when it comes to trimming gains on parabolic moves and eventually um, exiting at some point far down in the future. Justin, as uh, listeners go to your website, if they're not already familiar with it, uraniuminsider.com, what does that offer and how are you unique from other newsletter writers? Um, I think, uh, well, for my website on the front page, there's a sign-up form for anyone that would like to join the free newsletter. I send an email uh, once or twice a month that's just kind of more macro stuff and just sort of thoughts that don't fit into a a tweet thread really. Um, and then I have, uh, I have a premium newsletter where I, I share my current stock picks and I keep those newsletters, uh, t- newsletter subscribers informed really as up to date as I can on macro. And that's usually one to two emails a week. And I update on all of our positions that we track, um, any company updates and uh, new trades as they come into play in real time. And, um, I think that my newsletter is different in that, um, I, I keep the communication lines open um, very uh, consistently. So I, I respond to emails as quickly as I can, usually within 24 hours. And I think that you know, the, for some reason, people in the space love to read and they just absolutely soak up content, which is nice because I like to write. So <laughs> I find myself writing a lot and just really um, enjoying keeping on top of the sector and communicating frequently with all of the ebbs and flows of the market. And so far, so good. It's been, uh, you know, the first few months of the year were really painful um, for uranium in general. But uh, my subscribers, I, I believe, are, are up pretty substantially at the moment, and as well as I am. So I, I think that I offer a unique value just in that uh, frequency of communication and openness. Thank you, Justin. And you can also follow Justin on Twitter at Uranium Insider. He's got a thousands of followers, almost 7,000 followers as we speak on Twitter. And again, he's at the forefront of all uranium conversations online there on the Twitter platform. Justin, I really appreciate you sharing your insights on today's show. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Bill. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. 
I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.